creeds and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Nick. And today we have a special treat for you again. It's mm-hmm. going to be Genesis. Yay, more Genesis. Yay. Yep. Except after the fall. Ooh, dun, dun, dun. Actually, all the rest of the Bible is after the fall, so. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. But it just started. Just started. I was waiting for you to do the music again. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah. So, let's see. What we're going to do on this episode, before we get to Genesis mm-hmm. 3, will be the book corner. Ooh. And we've got some listener input to share with you. Ooh. Pray tell, what could it be, Allison? <laughs> Nick's um, on, on top of it with the sound effects. Well, that's what they say. So, I'm not uh, very good at those. Book corner. So, we got book corner. Listener input, and we're going Genesis Genesis 3. Okay. So, Book Corner, what are you reading this week? Because you're reading, like, lots of stuff. Because you're doing smart doctoral work. Yeah. So, I'm just going to share one. Just one. Um, It's called Conform to the Image of His Son, Reconsidering Paul's Theology of Glory in Romans by Haley Jacob. Ooh. Who uh, wrote the foreword to that? N.T. Wright. Ooh. Yeah. And this is already... A very good one. Um, hmm. I'm, I don't know, ecstatic. It, I, I will say this is groundbreaking work in Romans, and she especially nice. goes into the understanding of what glory is um, in the book of Romans and in Paul's theology, nice. and especially how it ties into, um, I guess, the telos of the faith and being made in the image of God. Hmm. So she ties uh, participation in Christ to the participating in his rule. And so it's not so much that the Pauline theology is about, when it comes to even Adam and Christ, it's not so much just fixated on the fact that Adam fell, hmm. but what was lost. Yeah. Um, and partly is that, uh, part of that is exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And hmm. then from there you've got, um, I guess you just, they, uh, humanity no longer reigns as it was intended to reign. As viceroys or agents, and okay. Yeah, as agents of God's world um, and representatives, and uh, that part is restored in Christ. So, it's, it's a good read. Um, it's I, good if read. you okay. want to read a, a book on Paul that's... Fresh. Fresh and yeah. groundbreaking, and it's going to come at it from different angles, this is the one. Nice. Uh, I have been working my way through John Golden Gay's 600 book on biblical theology. Uh, you could beat a goat to death with it. Uh, I am in his section on God's reign, which is really interesting, and he actually autographed it for me. I'm very happy to see that. So I've been reading that for probably the past week, just as something kind of, as uh, we might say, playtime reading. And it's really good. Uh, John is as idiosyncratic as one can be. He's also got a penetrating insight and an insane wit. So it's the book reads well, and it's a lot of fun, so I commend it to you. Uh, if you can find an autographed copy, you'll have to steal mine. So, <laughs> it, it's great. I, I love the book a lot. So, yeah. Book Corner! Yay! We did it! 
Yep. Um, so next is listener input. And we actually, we didn't know what to call this because um, we've definitely gotten a, a good question, um, which we should probably do last. It'll do last, yeah. It ties in more closely with the Genesis text. Um, I also heard from uh, someone who was responding to the last podcast where I was reading um, a paper on the theology of on abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also got some Patreon supporters. Yep. We, so, okay, so we're up to 21 reviews on iTunes with an average of five stars. So Wayne Grudem and John Piper haven't voted for us. So <laughs> uh, keep rating and reviewing us. Uh, well, only if you're interested in giving us an honest five-star review and rating. <laughs> uh, but I'm shocked. We I didn't think we'd get any. And the fact that we have 21 is really awesome. Just a thank you to Linda and Jess. I won't say your last names just out of not having permission to say them. But to our two patrons on Patreon. Uh, it's been really awesome for your support, and thank you so much. We didn't think we'd get one, let alone <laughs> two. So this is really cool. So just right. a, a thank you to you. That was kind of awesome to get an email about that. Yeah. So, so thank you for your support, and yeah. thank you for believing in what we're doing. Yes, and th- yeah, that's really cool. So thank you. That's really cool. All right, and one of our other listeners had a um, some very good input and feedback from uh, the last uh, podcast episode. Hmm on abuse and I won't share everything and I've gotten permission to share part of this um, message. Um, I've, I've left out all identifying information, mm, okay. but I think this would be helpful for everyone to hear. Um, Cause the thing is um, abuse, as you know, is a pervasive problem in the church and all and everywhere. Um, and it can take a variety of forms. Um, so this person, and I, this is near and dear to my heart too, um, said, personally, I would like to see a lot more awareness around issues of psychological and emotional abuse, and especially in the church. My wife and I were subjected to a sustained campaign of pathological lying, gaslighting, etc., from someone in our former church. Mm. We ended up having to appeal for help from the elders as the perpetrator was unrepentant. However, the elders knew nothing about this kind of abuse and were manipulated into doing the bitter of the abuser. Mm. We had to leave not only the church, but also that part of the country due to the lies and smear campaign war waged against us. It was all very stressful. Obviously, this will be a much larger topic that we'll have to cover at some later time. No, we can solve this in two minutes, Alex, Yeah, we totally can. Yeah, right? Yeah, because there's a lot that goes into this, um, especially involving um, predatory activity. Yep. And there are certain formulas and things you could look for mm-hmm. um, to spot if someone's a predator. Um, but I think for now, um, maybe something I can leave with... You guys, um, if you find yourself in the middle of something like this and are not the person actually being targeted. Yeah. Because um, really, this stuff happens because all the rest of us let it happen. Right. Um, uh, you can get, we can get into their, the very bizarre um, antisocial, like, psychopaths and, you know, other people or just really damaged people that start all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's the rest of us that really do the damage. Um, right. And I think you can get some of the sense of that in, I think, my, my paper. Mm-hmm. But here's what you can do. Um, right. First, take the targets, please, for help seriously. Okay. Um, articulated or not. And listen, watch, and act. Don't just listen so that they, quote, feel hurt. That's condescending and unhelpful. Very generally, that is actually not helpful at all. Yeah, they may be actually, the people um, scared may actually be quite inarticulate, um, mumbly. They may be extremely on edge. Um, And they may not sound like the person that has it all together. Um, Still take what they say seriously and listen. Mm -hmm. 
Um, also, look for patterns and effects over treating each individual I instance that they complain about in isolation. Mm. And avoid deciding on your own if in isolation it appears petty mm. or something that they shouldn't be complaining about. Gotcha. So, pattern. Um, has this happened before involving similar characters, um, either this person or another? So, the person that's, in this case, spreading the gossip. Um, and it's not gospel, actually. It's slander. Um, yeah. So, you know, let, let's, not, let's not dress it up. Um, but gossip can also be a pattern or a problem. Um, so, do they have a pattern of this before? You might have to do a little bit of research. Um, and then, is, this per, is person X repeatedly making moves, however small, against person Y? Hmm. And however petty? Yeah. Um, I know um, someone I'm related to um, would talk about her uh, work bully uh, trying to take her vacation slots, you Ooh, know, wonderful. and would appeal to fairness, you know, mm -hmm. and they didn't really want the vacation slots. They just wanted to undermine the person. So there's going to be a lot of these little moves that you're going to have to avoid over rationalizing for the person that's making the moves and saying, well, yeah, maybe they've got a point. You know, you, you really have to see in the big picture to catch the stuff. Right. Um, also look at what are the outcomes. Um, that's a, another good test. Um, so are there only hurt feelings or offendedness? Because people that are targeting other people will play this up to the max. Right. Um, they will become enraged and incensed over the targets, whatever it could be. It, it, they will come up with very crazy things um, to explain their be the target's behaviors. Hmm. Um, so look at um, what's what are the actual effects. Um, is this person that's um, being targeted experiencing ostracization or isolation? Hmm. Um, undermining of their reputation? Um, are they being made to look bad? Um, are the people themselves experiencing fear and dread? I don't mean just a little bit of, like, uneasiness, but they actually look scared. Right. Um, has their skills or ability or participation level in this community or church been undermined significantly? Or is it starting to happen? So, again, some of these things are very small, but what are the effects, um, both cumulative and singular, hmm. from the actions that were taken? Also, finally, it's time for you to act. I mean, it's really all of our, we're, we are all the gatekeepers of our community. Um, so if you're in leadership, um, and unfortunately a lot of this kind of stuff happens by leadership or people with social, um, I guess, uh, being maybe they're socially leaders. Um, they don't have to be official. Right. Uh, but anyway, if you're a leader and you're catching some of this happening, um, don't allow the gossip or subtle undermining or lies to continue. Um, first, articulate very clearly to the person doing this stuff, behavior what's acceptable and what are going to be the consequences. Have consequences. Um, warn the person when they do it again and make it publicly clear that this behavior is not okay. Um, a lot of care is taken um, to make sure perpetrators are shielded publicly because it makes the um, church or organization look bad. Uh, no, no more shadows, no more silence. Um, you can be tactful and, you know, good with how you do it, but... Make, a, make it public. And finally, have the person doing the smear campaign against the other leave. Finally. They don't stop. Yeah. Easy. Um, this stuff happens in organizations that let it, ultimately. Um, I saw that in one of my uh, books, and I think it's spot on. Hmm. Um, and then if you're part of the community but not in leadership, um, speak up for the person being talked about or reiterate and reiterate the community values, if they exist, um, really. And you'll know if they exist functionally or not. Right. Um, so are there community norms? Uh, maybe the gospel? Um, is this actually practiced in the community? Can you appeal to those for right behavior? 
um, call the call the person out. <laughs> um, here's the thing, though. Um, so I would say try and get others, ban others to come alongside with you, alongside the person. So don't try to just do this on your own if you're uh, watching this unfold. Try to get others to come with you to help that person that's being targeted. And I don't mean band together to go after the aggressor. Yeah, because, don't, don't mob. Yeah, because oftentimes that's what happens to people that are targeted. Um, they're label The um, person that's actually being targeted is labeled evil. Everyone bands together to cast out the evil one. And surprise, they weren't actually the evil one. Um, mm. Regardless, you know... Jesus told us how to treat our enemies and band together to come alongside the person that's being targeted. Um, and then if you're unable to get others to aid the person, let's say this, um, your social norms are not actually that, um, I would say do what you can to be a friend and a good neighbor to the person um, and ultimately try to get them and you to get into a better community that actually takes the gospel seriously. So that's what I have to say at the end of the day. Um, you can also um, stay and try to fight the system, and that's a whole other um, thing. But, <laughs> yep. Yep, and we also have a uh, question from Twitter. I believe it's Eloise. I'm awful with pronouncing names. Uh, she sent us a really cool question on Twitter uh, last episode, and it, she asked, I'd like your thoughts on not wanting children. I know it's not sinful, as Jesus didn't have kids, but is it a command from God? And, and good point, by the way. Jesus didn't have kids, and he's the supreme example of humanity. Right. So it's one of those things, if you believe the Bible to be consistent on this, it can't be a command from God, at least in the sense of a hard and fast rule. So, I mean, we look at, you know, look at the New Testament church, right? You've got Junia, without mention as being a mom. We met, we have Phoebe, who's not mentioned as being a Doesn't mom. Doesn't mean they're not. Doesn't mean they're not. There's also some characters that are, are single. Yeah. And so, I mean, Paul was single. That's kind of a big deal. Uh, most of the men... Uh, and Jesus, uh, the 12 were single, as at least I can tell. Um, yeah, and so singleness was seen as something quite proper. And uh, it's one of those things where I think... It, and Paul's it, command, too. Um, yeah, command yeah, to remain single. That's yeah. better to just remain single. For the kingdom. For the kingdom, specifically, rather than, um, yeah, just to get married and have children, essentially. Right. Because that's, that's why people got together and got married you know, back then anyway, mm -hmm. um, even with their side. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it's one of those things I, I know it, and her, her comment, I think is spot on. I know it's not sinful as Jesus didn't have kids. And I'm like, well, ding, 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 ding. You, you win. I, I think that's exactly right. But if, yeah. So in the context of Genesis though, um, how should we understand this command? Um, you have only two people, um, you kind of need in the story. That. Yeah. Um, in the story, um, there are only two people, and the earth is not filled. Yep. And the thing is, um, humanity was called to re represent God in the world, um, to rule the earth, to take as caretakers of the world, mm -hmm. um, to act as, um, I mean, God's the ultimate ruler and creator of creation. We're supposed to kind of act as, um, I guess as Richard Milton would point out, um, his priests in his temple, the temples, the earth and humanity as image bearers, um, kind of similar as the, to the, um, cultic, the near Eastern cultic, um, images of, mm -hmm. um, the gods, um, or in this case, the priest is, is more like it. Um, right. we are supposed to be caretaking the world. And the thing is, you can't do that if you have only two people in the garden. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I would say at this stage, um, the earth is filled. There are many humans made in the image of God. 
um, overall of creation. And we know that the image of God hasn't been entirely lost because after the fall, there's a passage that says that if one um, image bearer kills another, essentially um, that person deserves death. And it's the idea is, um, or the rationale given is because the person that was killed was made in the image of God. All right. So all that to say, um, if we look at the New Testament and how the New Testament um, sees us as fulfilling our calling as image bearers, um, we are supposed to become more like Christ and be conformed to his image. And because, and with that comes our restored rule in, in him. And that's going right. to be the eschatological rule when um, Jesus returns and all things are set right. Um, that said, I would say the call to fill the earth with image bearers is best fulfilled at this stage in human history um, by evangelism and, frankly, the church and the rest of us getting the plank <laughs> out of our own eye and actually representing God in the world. Yeah. Um, and so some of, even what the, um, one of our listeners um, talked about, and that was hoping more people realized um, just the multifaceted problem of abuse, and again, what's making the evangelical headlines right now, which are reprehensible, um, is a lot of the sexual abuse scandals. Really, what we need to do is realize that we are severely lacking, that we're not properly representing God in this world. We're representing a whole different God um, and that we need to shape up. So I would say our command is best, that command is best fulfilled now by, again, um, getting, our, getting our house in order and bringing other people into the life that we have, if we indeed have this life. And I think there's a lot of churches that do. Um, I grew up in a fantastic church that really um, was there for me and helped me grow spiritually and as a person. And I think there are other Christians out there. And yeah, so become the person that God wants you to become and help others to do the same. Yeah, and also in verse uh, Genesis one twenty eight, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And so you get the sense in which God blessed them and said to them, so and said to them is included in the blessing idea, be fruitful and multiply. So the whole thing is not a command of God, it's a blessing of God that we see also in verse 22, where it's talk, God talks about, and God saw that it was good, that is the creation of living creatures. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Yeah. And so I think the whole idea is not that it's a hard, fast command, it's more like you're blessed and be given uh, a vocation of, of participating in God's kingdom, therefore go and do likewise. And so. Yeah, and I think in a lot of cultures, too, um, throughout time, um, the question of do I have to have children hasn't been as um, dominant, I think, as well. And, again, just different, um, maybe a different time <laughs> and just different thoughts. I know, though, that a lot of cultures now, um, especially in the Christian church, actually especially tell women that you're part of your duty um, as... I guess a Christian woman is to have children. Um, I got chastised um, back when I was going to a um, interesting school for one semester um, when I was in, for, it was my first semester of graduate school. I got chastised because I wanted to adopt. And I was told children are a blessing. No. It's like, that is true. Yes. But no, it's because I, I wasn't count, thinking I would have my own at the time. Um, I've since, you know, changed my mind somewhat. I, I'm really not, you know, however God wants to bless us, it's fine by me. Um, but, yeah, so let's just say it, it it's out there. Um, I just don't think there's any 
hard and fast um, biblical basis for saying that you as a woman are, you know, singularly responsible for um, childbearing. And especially there's, of course, all these exceptions of people that can't do that um, as well. But <laughs> why, don't they, why don't they ever say that to men? That's true. I'd, I've never once had someone say, do you want to have kids? Hence, remember my ovaries got prayed over. Yep. That was awkward. Yep. yep. All right. So Genesis. Genesis, that easy book of the Bible. All right. So a brief recap on episode two of what happened last time. Uh, the serpent basically comes out of the blue <laughs> and he talks to the woman and does the whole, did God really say? And she says, you know, all this stuff. And we'll, we'll recap this more specifically, but just to bring everyone back up to speed. She says, don't do this. And the serpent says, oh, of course you should do this. And then she looks at the fruit and says, that's really pretty fruit and eats it and gives it to her husband who was with her. And then they both are basically realize what they did. Who was with her? Yep. Who was with her? I'm so, so proud of myself when I was a kid that I pointed that out in Sunday school. Yep. The first time I noticed it in Hebrew, I was like, oh, that's what that is. And so, all right. And so you got the introduction to the snake in the first seven verses. You have this uh, we might say conflict that begins that we didn't really see. Um, a lot of people will make a big deal out of the fact that the serpent comes to the woman and says, you know, therefore women are more easily deceived or women are more susceptible to deception. Uh, Douglas Moose said that at one time and then retraced his steps very quickly. And what you get a sense here is the narrative doesn't actually tell you why the serpent approached Eve. The narrative doesn't tell you. That's one of those things where the narrative is often very keen to tell you certain things, but what the narrative tells you is usually what's really important. And so we don't have any influence or uh, reason to basically go, well, therefore women are more easily susceptible or all this sort of stuff. I know that women tend to be more verbal than men, so that must be it. Maybe that was it. I don't know. <laughs> We're joking. Yeah. But, I mean, that's true, but yeah. yeah. And so, for example, Ray Ortland, who wrote probably in just his article on this and recovering biblical manhood and womanhood, there are some articles in there that are at least competently done that are given that you can at least interact with on a really good level. It's like, if you're gonna if you want to read um, a giant book on where you get constant complementarian arguments and ideas um, and interpretation, um, that's the book to go to. Yep, recovering biblical manhood and womanhood is the book is the complementarian manifesto. Lots of versions, but really they're all the same. The intros change. Yep, the the preface changes and all this sort of stuff. But the articles inside haven't changed. Hence, Ray Ortland's article has not been updated since, I believe, 1991. Yeah. Which, I mean, if you can improve on perfection, I guess. So, uh, we have this sort of thing where Ray Ortland will make these sorts of comments. Like, oh, therefore the woman was more easily deceived. Or she took initiative when she shouldn't have. And all this sort of stuff. And the text, and that's the thing. With a lot of complementarian theology, you get a sense in which you retroactively think you understand what Paul says. And then you read Genesis. When hermeneutically, that's just not how you do it. If you're trying to understand Genesis on Genesis' own terms. So just a good hermeneutical key. If, someone's, if you go to someone and say, what does Genesis 3 say? And they go, well, Paul says, and you're like, uh, no, what does Genesis 3 say? You start with what came before in order to understand what happens later. And so what you have here is not the uh, uh, abdication of, quote, male headship or the usurpation of it. You have something that Richard Hess, in his really good article in Discovering Biblical Equality, edited by our friend Ron Pierce, uh, you get the sense this is not ab this is not a challenge to male headship. This is the serpent challenging God's authority. He's not challenging male authority because we think uh, <laughs> if that were clear, that's what you know. He go you know uh, Adam would be at front and center of all this, but Adam's not. Uh, throughout this section, verses one to seven, 
Uh, Ortland says something like, a man just by virtue of his manhood is called to lead for God. A woman by just by virtue of her womanhood is called to help for God. That's a direct quote from page 91 of RBMW. And what I found interesting about this sort of idea is that with a lot of complementarians, they won't go there. That's the idea of a distinction between functional subordination and ontological subordination. You know, for the doctrine of the Trinity, that's usually a big thing. Jesus is not ontologically subordinate to God, but only in function is he subordinate to God. Well, here, Ray Ortland just collapses all that into one and says ontological subordination, which apparently is not that uncommon. And so when people say women are equal to men, you can't really say that here because Ortland basically has collapsed categories. And so what you have here is uh, Eve was deceived, and, and what that means for Ortland is Adam forsook his responsibility. He actually says this. And so what we're seeing here is something, I think, completely different. We are seeing that the relational component of the text is seriously violated. But even then, you have a sense in which they do things together. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the serpent talks to Eve, and God knows this, and knowing good and evil, and blah, blah, blah. She took the fruit and gave it to her husband, or to Adam, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves and made... So they, they respond as one together still. And it's interesting that they have to sew fig leaves together to make yep. garments for themselves. What do you yep. make of that? It's the idea of, going back to Genesis 1, the idea of creation being something created by God, and there's kind of necessary components and antitheses and stuff like that. In order to do this, they sewed fig leaves together. It's kind of the bringing together of things despite that which is beginning to crumble. Okay. Okay, so they're, in a sense, they're manifesting outwardly... Yep. That they're, they in, inside are kind of falling apart yep. and feel exposed. So they have to try to bring things together in a very superficial and lacking way. Yeah, and it's an immediate response, it seems, to uh, what's happened. They're, both of their eyes were opened, and so they both did this together. And so uh, that so that's kind of the recap of verses 1 to 7. Then verse 8, then the man and his wife, so they both hear the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day, which I think is a really cool phrase. Yeah. And they hid from the Lord God, they, among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called, called out to the man, where are you? So therefore, okay, going back to the idea, God addressing Adam first, or primarily. Uh, Ortland likes to say this sort of stuff. Somehow the act of God calling out Adam first somehow indicates male headship. And you kind of sit here and go, well... The text, again, as we're forced to say over and over, never makes this sort of assumption, clear at least. And second, the snake does subvert authority, but as I said, it's not male authority, as Richard Hess has pointed out, it's God's authority. And so what you have here is what you might call a uh, the climax of foreshadowing in literary terms. So God speaks to Adam in Genesis 2, God speaks to Adam again in Genesis 3. So it's literary consistency, not male headship. And so... Um, and again, you have to really read that in. Like, yes. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's only two of them there. Yeah. Um, and I mean, later he pronounces judgment with the woman first. Maybe yep. she was, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's really, I, I think it's a bit of a stretch to all of a sudden when there's no male hierarchy even hinted at, and actually the reverse. So it's not like all things are equal. Like, right. the text has actually said that they're supposed to rule together. Mm-hmm. Um, the text has actually said that um, Eve is a strength corresponding to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, in, in light of all that, why suddenly say um, implicitly the text is saying that Adam should have been in charge all along? That go that flies yeah. in the face of the actual concrete evidence we've had. So and far. basic hermeneutics. And basic hermeneutics yeah. that we all are taught in Bible school. And so the serpent's questions are about what God has said, not about what her authoritarian husband has said, which I think is interesting. It's not, he doesn't go, well, didn't Adam tell you what God told you? 
you know, kind of thing. So it's, no, it's God. God gave him, gave Adam the command, and this foreshadows his calling out to Adam again, showing again the subversion of both Adam and Eve of God's command. And so in verse 11, uh, and God said, who told you that you were naked and so on and so forth. Um, Go ahead, read it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's see. Um, I'll, I'll start with verse nine. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So you have him. I heard you. I was, I was, and, I hid, and I hid myself. Yep. I heard. I was afraid. I was naked. I hid. And so it's kind of cool. And so God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put me, put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And so pausing there real quick. The, someone's being sassy to God. <laughs> someone's mouthing off to God. That always works well. Keep reading in the Old Testament and see how well that goes. And God was so nice. I know. The man said, the woman you put here with me, Emma, or uh, my Hebrew pronunciation was bad. Same uh, preposition, different form, but same preposition as in verse six. Uh, the woman he, who was with her, he was with her and the garden and stuff like that. And so this preposition here in Hebrew describes, I think, the relational component and also the proximity in verse 6. So he, he was with her both in terms of uh, mental ascent uh, and proximity because he was there with her just spatially and also relationality. They both chose to do something together as of one mind or one flesh, we might say. Here in verse 12, he is breaking that. Adam is breaking that. Uh, and by saying, um, the, the woman you put here with me, and so you get the sense in which uh, Adam is breaking that proximity. While Eve is probably close to him here, he's beginning to push her away. He's a tad defensive. Just a little bit. Having just caused the fall of the, the world. And I think what's interesting, too, both Adam and Eve are the ones who are seeking to impugn God's authority and character here. Yeah. Uh, the goodness of God in creation, there basically Adam is maligning, well, you did this to me. You created this thing that I originally was like, this is wonderful. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And now I'm pushing her away from me. And that's a good point. He's essentially blaming God for the fall, yep. which is actually quite evil. Quite grotesque, actually. Yeah. Uh, and so they're impugning God. They both, Adam and, e or Adam and the serpent, are of one mind and who's responsible for this, which I think is hilarious. Um, this is God's fault. And so God turns Wait, to... Wait, does the woman say it's God, God's fault, or uh, she just blamed the, the serpent? No, she, she's, uh, she actually tells the truth. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. In verse... Yeah. Um, let me pull that up. Verse 13b. And he, he, but he turned... What I think is interesting... Why don't you read it? Yeah. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. She doesn't blame her spouse. She doesn't blame God. But she does avoid, also avoid responsibility. Yep. She, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Yeah. I mean, the thing is like people don't make you do things. Right. Um, yeah, she got deceived, but you know, I mean, she listened quite a bit. She knew what was right going in. She looked and she saw and she did. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, God, but what is interesting here is God's not accusatory toward either of them. As you mentioned earlier, when we were talking, he asked them questions. Yeah, I love that. Like, um, he's walking in the garden and he knows very well what's happened, but he doesn't, God's, God's not the one that's being accusatory towards them, even though they've done something horrible. Or the even, serpent was accusatory to him. Well, the serpent? Yeah, the serpent earlier on by saying all these things, did God really say? Oh yeah. Serpent's like, did God really say? And yep. interesting because Adam mirrors that yep. in a sense and says, um, this woman that you gave me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a, there's some God blaming there. Um, God doesn't openly accuse them. He asks the question, which is actually quite keen, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but it's God after all. And he knows the answer, but he lets them, he lets them kind of, um, I guess, fumble a bit, and he gives them opportunity, I think, even though they're not taking it. Mm -hmm. They're 
they're they're blaming each other they're blaming the serpent they're blaming yep. god um yeah fascinating what i find interesting here too in verse 14 so the lord god said to the serpent because you have done this the lord god doesn't even ask the serpent for the serpent side of the story because <laughs> he I mean, knows. I, yeah he's like oh this this son of a, all right fine we'll do you know so verse 14 because you have done this cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and then verse 15 is the proto-evangelium that we find it in first timothy 2 and i'll put enmity between you and the woman or hostility between you and the woman between your offspring and hers her offspring he will crush that is her offspring will crush your head kephali and you will strike his heel and i think in first timothy it's the singular seed yep the seed of the woman yep which is biologically odd but theologically and actually philosophically quite powerful that it attributes the the messianic promise to the woman and not to the man here yeah and so uh, or it's, yeah, the child. Yes. Birth. Yeah, in First Timothy. And so, for so in in kind of closing up at least my section more specifically, um, when uh, Ray Ortland and others make this claim that well, the man is talked to first, or the woman is gone to, and is is you know deceived and all this sort of stuff. When the text doesn't make something clear, the text is not inviting you to fill in the options with with your own modernistic you know biases against women. The text will tell you what the text wants you to know. And the text is actually, in a lot of Hebrew narrative, is intentionally quite ambiguous and wants you to kind of stop and think about what is being said. And so when it talks about Adam being with her and then blaming God for putting her with him, I think that's very profound. It's not about him, uh, Adam, having this sort of, my ego's hurt because of male headship. It is, this rift has already happened, and he's responding to it in a way that well, sin a sinful person or a person in this situation would. And I think they've got, I think our opponents have part of this um, puzzle correct. And unfortunately, it's what's left out that really misses the mark. Hmm. Yeah, Adam did, um, I guess, give up his, his headship over the earth and creation. Yeah. Um, he did surrender that when he also took up the fruit. But the thing is, so did Eve. Yep. They were both called to rule the earth and ironically by wanting to become more like god on their own terms mm-hmm. um they separated themselves from the source of life and they separated themselves from god and they separated they severed themselves from the from um from ruler yeah from rulers yeah um they are the image of god yep you know and god is the true creator and the true ruler um what they have is derivative yep. and they they surrendered that um yeah. Just tragic. They abdicated their responsibility of imaging God in the world. And they did so together because they both participated in this. Not because Adam held primary responsibility or that Eve held primary responsibility. They together jumped into this with both feet first. So this is a challenge to more critical feminist theory that sees Eve as as only the victim here without acknowledging her own agency because yeah. I believe Eve has agency because I believe Eve has free will and has a mind that God gave her. And the thing is, all of us have it too, and yep. we surrender our um, right to rule when we place ourselves um, in the likeness of these two. Um, in yep. the end, um, yep. and not in the light, and we don't try to um, surrender our lives to to God. Um, mm. So yeah, and this is not the most controversial part of Genesis that we're going to be talking about. <laughs> but so okay, so recap: you have all this stuff going on. Uh, you see the severance, the beginning of the severance between the sexes and stuff like that, as we might say. Um, but there is that promise between the offspring, the future offspring, the messianic promise here. But in verse 16 is where uh, things become a lot more, you might say, convoluted. 
All right, so I will actually read through 16 through 19 and do some commentary, and then I'll read on to the rest. Okay. Um, to the woman, he said, I will make your pregnancy very painful. In pain, you will bear children. You will desire your husband. It shouldn't be desire. But he will rule over you. To the man, he said, because you listened to your wife's voice and you ate from the tree that I commanded, do not, do not eat from it. Cursed is the fertile land because of you. In pain, you will eat from it every day of your life. Weeds and thistles will grow for you, even as you eat the field's plants. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread until you return to the fertile land, since from it you were taken. You are soil, to the soil you will return, or to dust you will return. Mm. So there's there's several things here. Um, first, I think um, Carol Meyer's uh, translation is actually better for verse 16. I will greatly multiply your efforts and your childbearing. Um, and again, excuse my Hebrew pronunciation. It's been a very long time since I've taken courses. Um, so the interesting, something to note, especially for verse 17, is efforts here. Um, Esteban is used um, for the man um, tilling the earth, too, hmm. in verse 17. Okay. So the idea is not so much, um, I will make your pregnancy very painful and pain you will bear children, um, as much as I will greatly multiply your efforts and your childbearing. So two things. Hmm. Um, so both the tilling the earth, same as the man, same word, um, and then also childbirth. Both the, both of those things, which were good things, um, part of, you know, humanity's getting into the root of humanity's calling hmm. are now going to be very painful. Um, the other thing is, and I'll maybe get into this a little bit more at the end, toward a little towards the end to wrap up this little section. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the, it should be desire. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you, but rather uh, to turn or return. Hmm. And I'll get into reasons why. Um, and that's also, I think, the Septuagint's uh, cho- uh, chosen transla- uh, interpretation, too. Hmm. Um, so, next, um, verse 17. To the man, he said, because you listened to your wife's voice. All right. So, you know, it should go without saying. Well, he done wrong. He listened to his wife. He shouldn't have done that. And it's quite reductionistic to say his problem was he listened to his wife. Happy like, wife, happy happy life, dude. You messed it up. You know. Yeah. Uh, um. Rather, it's what what he listened to, um, yeah. and the text tells us um what was actually wrong about what he did. Um, mm-hmm. Because you listened to your wife your wife's voice and ate from the tree that I commanded, do not eat from it. Yeah. So you know it's it's not because he listened to Eve, but because he, you know, he he sinned against God, just like um she did. They both did. Mm. Um, they were both there, and they both did it. Um. So, you know, I mean, and it's interesting because um, the the text does not say that um, Adam was deceived. Um, and actually, First Timothy says the opposite. Mm-hmm. That he wasn't deceived. So, in a sense, he's sitting with a high hand here. Yep. Um, you know, perhaps um, Eve was also self-deceived. You know, who knows? Yeah. But, you know, there, there's some nuance here with their sins. But ultimately, they both um, subverted... Um, God's rule, and by subverting God's rule, um, subverted their own. Yep. Um, and it, this is this describes a whole decline in creation hmm. itself. And so there's this intimate connection between um, who we are as image bearers and what we're called to be, and how we're supposed to take care of the earth itself and each other, hmm. and what happens um, from that when we when we disconnect from God and from each other. Hmm. 
Um, and so the Bible sees these um, the, the care of the land and the state of the land is intimately connected with um, our state of sin and our connection to the Lord. And you, you see that elsewhere in the Old Testament as well. Yeah. Um, oh, did you have something? Yeah, the Septuagint um, actually uses a, a word I've, I've actually never seen before. It actually doesn't have a, a lot of uh, data points in the wrong? lexicon. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a apostrophe, apostrophe, and means uh, in according to um, according to uh, Liddell Scott Jones to turn one's back or to turning away from or escape or something like that, and it, it's it's a very odd word. I've yeah to turn. Um, so Eve turns, and I'll explain that a little later. Um, to turn. Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting word. Her desire will be for her husband. There's several options um, interpretation wise, but. Um, our next part, um, after we see a decline of the earth itself and how that's going to make Adam's, Adam and Eve's life a lot worse, um, a lot of us fixate on how much harder things are going to be for Adam and Eve. Mm. But really, I mean, think about this. I mean, think about the harm done to the earth itself. Right. And the harm done that, you know, we've done to, I mean, we have rebelled against God. Um, we have done something awful and we've done something awful to the world and we continue to do horrible things to the world and to the people around us. Mm. And just like, I mean, we, we sin in the likeness of Adam yeah. know, to use, um, you know, Romans five language. Um, at the end of the day, um, I think what follows next, um, in a sense is fitting, um, to dust from the, to dust to dust. Mm. Um, and so it goes back to that intimate connection you were taken from this and you're going to return to this one day. And mm. now I'd like to get into some of the nuances of um, verse 17 because it's going to, or um, verse 16, sorry, because um, it's going to tie all this together in the significance. Okay. All right. So let's, let's, why, so why should it be um, not desire? Your desire will be for your husband, but to return. Mm. So you'd say you'll return, you will return for your husband, or something like that. That's kind of what you're uh, beginning to talk about. No, no. So oh, even better, mystery, mystery, mystery. Here's another way. Um, so the Orthodox Study Bible actually translates it as your recourse will be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Hmm. So that's another way to you know recourse is to turn you know to for help, um, and you know Eve's also the helper of Adam. Yeah. Um, but turns to someone for help for um, strength mm. and the opposite happens um, right. instead of getting well help or a strength that's also corresponding to her um, she gets ruled over yeah so but wh why think that it should be to turn or return um, instead of that and there's a there's an actual uh, 2011 study on Tashuka um, by Joel Lohr called Sexual Desire, and it's found in Journal of Biblical Literature. Because another one of these um, interpretations is that Eve turns to her husband in sexual desire, you know. As if they didn't have that before, but okay. Yeah, um, another, uh, and, and just to put it out there, um, another interpretation that I used to take was that it's more desire to, to rule, so kind of this battle of those sexes hmm. idea. And that kind of fits the theme of the text, but I think it's incorrect because um, I think there's a better choice, linguistic choice. Um, so here's the problem. There's only three instances of the world of the word, um, the word itself, um, tshuka in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like we have a ton of, um, samples to go by for a proper word study. So why is it with all these gender texts that are so 
like disputed. They're, they're like almost all hotbox legominas. Like there's so many, there's like so few occurrences of these words. It's like, you'd almost think God was like, you know, maybe you're just missing the point by focusing on this and making all these things goofy guys. Yeah. We really tend to love to major in the minors here, mm-hmm. but um, there were, so back into, there were other, there, the thing is we have other samples now to choose from. We didn't have a ton of examples to look at and sort through to decide what should mean. Hmm. And um, to return or to turn actually fits all three of these biblical passages, but it also fits um, several portions found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh, okay. Um, and again, these are some uh, famous um, ancient Hebrew texts um, that were discovered, and you can read up all about it. Um, there's no time to go through it here, but it, it was big um, in biblical studies when this came out. Hmm. But anyway, um, we have uh, seven examples of the word teshuka that appear here. And in all of them turning or returning, um, or in most of them seem like a better fit um, than desire, for instance. And so here's just two examples um, that I'll read you. At what shall one born of woman be considered in your presence? Shaped from dust has he been. Maggot's food shall be his dwelling. He has spat saliva, molded clay, and... Um, so here's the exa- you know, examples. For dust is his lodging, or to dust is his return. Mm, probably a second, you know. Yeah. For the first, op- so the first option does make a little sense in there, um, and the second one adds more clarity. Yeah. Um, so the one made of saliva and clay will again become dust. So here's the second example: Do not fear or be discouraged. May your heart not be faint. Do not turn back or flee from from them, for they are wic- they are a wicked congregation. All their deeds are in darkness, and to it, option one go their desires, or two, they will return. So again, um, two makes more obvious sense. So they return to something. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So again, context um, makes all the difference. The congregate, you know, in context, congregation is told not to be afraid. Um, Their deeds will return to darkness, gives a reason for the courage. Um, enemy will return to darkness, not to threaten them again. So stuff like that. Yeah. In Genesis four, for instance, Cain is warned that sin will return to him if he does not master it. Hmm. Again, if, if, just um, go back to that passage and fit desire in it. Does it work better than return? Uh, I think return fits a lot better. Um. Now here's where it gets interesting, um, and this gets into the Hebrew parallelism at work. Um, so if we take return to be the proper um, translation here, which I think it is, um, we have some very interesting things that go on. So just as Adam will return to Adama, earth, um, so Isha, woman, will return to Ish, man. And so you remember those terms from our last discussion on Genesis, mm-hmm. where the man uh basically revels or glories in the fact that there's um, distinction now. And remember, we remember, too, that this wasn't, he wasn't naming Eve. He was recognizing that this here was another one of him, except different, sexually distinguished. So Ish is the word for man, and Isha is essentially the word for man, but with a feminine ending. Um, so just as Adam returns to Earth, so Adam from Adama, so um, Isha will return or turn to Ish, man. So there's an equal, like, returning or turning to their sources of origin, except things are very distorted and warped. Hmm. Um, so again, Adam, uh, and again, this is all literary. So again, we saw that um, the woman also is 
going to have trouble with the earth. And, you know, obviously, obviously we all know, you know, it doesn't matter who tills the earth. It's still <laughs> going to be just as bad. Right. Um, but again, with the um, literary, the parallelism here, um, man was taken from the earth and now he turns to it. And now things are, are just terrible. Yeah. Um, and again, and it even talks about um, dying and returning to earth that way. Mm -hmm. And in a similar way, um, woman is described as turning to the man um, that she was supposed to co be a strength corresponding to, you know, earlier in the passage. But now he's going to dominate and rule over her. And that we definitely see um, throughout you know, human history. Right. Um, we see the fall in play. And again, as I think we've covered before in other podcasts, um, how, how has it actually been for men to rule in the earth? Are, are places where men have more um, leadership and rule over women, um, do we see actual more mutual thriving um, economically for all of them? Or do we see more chaos? Um, and do we see more poverty for everyone? And the answer is we see more poverty for everyone. Hmm. Um, in countries where women have a lot more say over um, their own bodies and over um, who they get to marry and um, basic have access to basic health care and ed education and, um, and are able to vote, we see more mutual thriving. Hmm. And that's really how the world was made God set up the world to function. Um, he did not set it up to function well with only one gender ruling over the other. And we see all sorts of sins and abnormalities that come out of that. Mm -hmm. And that shouldn't surprise us. You know, we could say, well, we just haven't seen unilateral rule done well. And yeah, we really haven't for the most part. Um, even the ones that are done well are still paling compared to other places. Yeah. Um, and so at what point are we going to just acknowledge, I think, that very obvious concrete reality and say that especially, I think, aligns with our text and say um, places where women have more of an equal say, um, we all do better. Yeah. Sounds about right to me. Yep. All right. So let's go on to verse um, 20. I'll go to 20 and 24. All right. The man named his wife Eve because she is the mother of everyone who lives. The Lord God made the man and his wife leather clothes and dressed them. The Lord God said, The human being has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And so he doesn't stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Um, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to farm in fer the fertile land from which he was taken. He drove out the human to the east of the Garden of Eden. He stationed winged creatures wielding flaming swords to guard the way of the tree of life. And so we have anime as a first part of God's creation. Yeah, so... Sounds you know, kind of awesome. So he doesn't take from the... <laughs> stretch out his hand and also take from the tree of life and live forever. we got to put a, a stop to this. Yeah. Um. So first thing to comment on, verse 20. Now the man names um, Eve. Yep. Um, before, uh, it was a recognition. Um, it was essentially recognizing what the text says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, but seeing another writer, you know, corresponding to him. So you have the Ish and Isha. Yep. Um, now we actually have a name here. We've got the Hebrew naming formula here. Um, and I mean, it's not a bad name, mother of all the living. Um, yeah. not bad, but yeah. the thing is, um, you, you know, the humans were supposed to name the creatures. Yep. And the human has now named um, Eve. <laughs> so yeah. that's not good. Um, 
And the other interesting thing is you have God still making them clothing to dress them. Yep. They didn't do a really good job earlier, and he <laughs> goes ahead and does something here. Um, yeah, there's nothing sexy about banana leaves. Yeah, and I mean, we can get into all the, you know, you know things about, you know, for sacrifice, other things, but I think it's just very interesting to see, and especially in terms of thinking of how should human beings consider their own rule. I mean, look at what God does um, in comparison to other Near Eastern rulers and Near Eastern gods. Um, he, he cares for the earth. God is constantly um, caring for and trying to help humanity grow. Um, he's not accusatory, you know, towards them, even though they've done, they've done bad. Um, and so I think that's a good lesson um, for us as well. And again, showing care for their well-being with giving them, clothing them when they were naked and couldn't do so themselves. Yep. But yeah, okay, so next part, and again, this is less relevant to our um, series on gender, so I'll just go through it quickly. Um, they're blocked from the tree of life. Um, uh, yep, they're going to keep on living, but they will live significantly less. Yep. And um, ultimately, they will die. And that puts a limit on perhaps even the damage that they can do yep. um, as individuals. Yeah, the uh, the immortal became mortal. Yeah, and there's a whole um, patristic discussion and one that is ongoing into modern times as to the nature of immortality mm -hmm. and um, is humanity was humanity made as immortal, potentially immortal, and or was he always contingent upon God's immortality? And so, if you take away God, does a human being, by virtue of being a human being, live forever? So you can kind of think through that yourself and <laughs> come to some conclusions. So that's that's what I've got. And we're waiting at this point. We All we have is our own darkness and a promise of a future savior um, from the singular seed of Eve. He's coming, or he came, so yep. good for us. <laughs> good for us. And so in, in summation, we've seen nothing that smells even remotely of what might be called uh, mainstream complementarianism. There's yeah. no sense of male headship or male prior, uh, gendered priority or anything like that. We've seen, in fact, the opposite, the fact that the author, even in uh, his probably extremely patriarchal context, sought to include women as co-rulers, as co-image bearers of God, um, as co-agents in creation, uh, never once speaks in a diminutive way towards her or about her yeah um and we just we saw that mutual rule and mutual inter interdependence yep it turned to man ruling over the woman and the entire earth going into disarray as both are actually subjected to sin mm -hmm. we see both are talked about in terms of sacred architecture yeah as being that which god took seems to take great delight in creating uh the fact that time is taken to create them God cares about their bodies together as a, as a unit. And the fact that the man leaves his father and mother and mother and embraces his wife and they become one flesh indicates, you might say, a resistance to the idea of male hierarchy or male headship. Yeah, and actually in a lot of human societies, and actually interestingly, um, I think primates too, mm -hmm. um, women are female, I guess, if we're including animals, um, are generally safer um, when they're able to basically have the terrain mm -hmm. and you know no it's no secret that women are 
they don't have as huge muscles typically. Um, they're not as large as we have some sexual dimorphism <laughs> happening here. Um, so women do tend to be a lot safer when um, they're on their turf. Yeah. So perhaps that had something to do with it as well, where you have kind of an undermining of um, male dominion, where she leaves her, I guess you could say, your her father's household and joins her husband's household. Right. Um, there's a lot more of an expansive vision here, and it'd be interesting to know more of the history of where that's involved. But she's essentially going into, um, he's coming into her larger family structure. Right. I mean, they're, they're both going off together, but yeah. Yeah. And we see also as they fall together, uh, the language of, uh, of plural, uh, uh, of them being spoken of as they saw clearly, they were naked, they sewed, they did this, they did that. And we see the, the breaking of, of the, the relationality between Adam and Eve before God. And we also see God's character revealed in that God did not see fit to just poof them out of existence or... Uh, any sort of thing like that. God granted them a life to live, albeit it'll be a harder life and a more difficult life. But God promised them that there would be, well, we might say in this upcoming Advent season, hope that there would be hope amidst this thing that they brought upon themselves. And even in the midst of that hopelessness, God would be present with them. And so I think uh, Eve's redemption is Adam's redemption is Adam's redemption is Eve's redemption. And that's something we long for. And we live into as co-viceroys in the kingdom. To be uh, quite blunt about it, I don't think we should drive our ethics from the fall, but from the incarnation. Yeah. And so the whole idea, even if we read Genesis 3.16 as complementarian, as we want to, the incarnation is the final assault against such an idea. And so the idea being that we would take the fall and give it our prime example of how we're supposed to live our lives results in basically a non-Christian or non, yeah, non-Christian ethic. Yeah, and the thing is, um, a lot of um, Old Testament or scholars will say that what's being cursed is, of course, the earth and the serpent, but the humans are never cursed. Yep. Um, God certainly describes what will occur, because, um, I mean, he, he knew what was coming down the pike. Um, he knew, too, um, in the future when he told them, he told the Israelites, uh, you, you want a king, but these horrible things will happen. Well, we want a king anyway. Well, all right. Yeah. Um, so, again, I think it comes back to us now. We're, um, now that we are in Christ, now that Christ has essentially lifted, Christ has enabled our access into um, our, our, our status again, um, being made in the image of God and our sense, our, our ability to rule, that function, that fu- functional part um, of what we are in our identities has been restored in a sense that um, that status has been re- restored in Christ. Um, how do we now live into that? Um, how do we be um, the kind of people that he called us to be now that this is restored and now that we have access again? I think that's the question that we all have to ask ourselves. And again, it goes back to how do we treat um, those around us? Um, how do we treat other image bearers? How do we treat um, the earth itself? That's actually, I think, a big part of it as well. Yeah. How do you treat God's creation? And God's creation includes human beings like us. And so it means treating people as sacred architecture, treating the earth as something that is holy. And as the, as the Wesleyans put it, you know, living a life of holiness that seeks to make other people holy and to be uh, sanctified by them as well. Yeah. And we're supposed to build others up um, 
not tear them down. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a lot of really damaged, disillusioned people there that just, some of them just want to hurt other people too. And yeah. we're called to love them as well and try to build them up in, not in their evil, you know, schemes and devices, but in who they are and who they're actually called to be. Yeah. Um, and so I think if we can remind each other of that, you know, all the time and take every opportunity to encourage um, one another in our gifting, our unique gifts, because, um, the thing is, no one individual can take care of God's earth by themselves. We need, we need all of us, really. We weren't designed to be, designed to be little individuals, not doing anything and being disconnected from each other. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah. So that's Genesis one to three. As we can see, it's filled with male headship and whispers <laughs> of male headship and echoes and of male headship. Female headship. Yay! Yay! Female headship. Yay! Basically, we're supposed to rule together. Yeah, I think that's something I think a lot of And we're supposed from. to not rebel against God and not blame God for all our problems and each other and the serpent. No, we, we have a serpent for that. We don't need to blame God for what the serpent does because the devil's bad. We're so, no, we're, wait, we're, we're supposed allowed to, to we're allowed take to blame responsibility. The no, we, we blame the serpent because the serpent's bad. We also have to deal with what we do, but we don't blame God for bad stuff. We blame the serpent for bad stuff. We blame ourselves for, okay, doing, for listening to the serpent. Does that mean the serpent is us? What? Schlarmacher. Yeah. Oh my god. All right.